The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a true power in our lives to change and transform us, to work a work in our lives that changes us from the inside out so that our character mirrors and reflects the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we sit here and devote our time this morning in the highest form of worship, the study of your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will make the things of your word clear to us, that we can understand them and apply them in our lives, that we may glorify you in everything we say, we think, and we do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. Isn't it nice to have the air conditioner on this morning? I guess I won't have any excuse for falling asleep now. I have to stay alert. Now, sometimes when it's been so hot in here lately, I know that a number of you have difficulty staying awake, and I see the heads nodding and bobbing out there and the eyes closing. You know, I think last Sunday, I think a third of the congregation was not here at any given time. And I was fading in and out too. Just because I'm up here and my eyes are open and I'm talking doesn't mean I'm always as conscious as at other times. So we're glad to have the air back on. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. Let's just start reading in verse 11 to pick up the context and begin by reading down through verse 17. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was proclaimed by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it, annihilate it, decimate it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen by being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. As we get into this section of Galatians, this is the first major part of the epistle. And it is here that Paul will establish the remainder of this chapter and all of chapter 2, his credentials. He he starts off, as we have seen the last two Sundays, in verses 11 and 12, uh, establishing a basic proposition. And that proposition is that the gospel that he teaches, the gospel that he proclaims, is not from the source of man. In other words... As Paul faced this problem in the churches of Galatia, he realized that his authority, his apostolic authority, was under attack. They accused him of not having any relationship with the apostles down in Jerusalem, and therefore, that whatever he taught had no authority, that he was just a maverick out there on his own, and he really didn't have the backing of the apostles in Jerusalem, so he was not someone who ought to be listened to or ought to be obeyed. This is typical of anybody who comes in and wants to start stirring up trouble as they immediately begin to attack the authority of the, of the person who's teaching. That's the, the number one tactic. Satan uses that all the time. Try to destroy someone's credibility, wipe out their credentials, and then no one will listen to whatever they have to say. So the first problem that Paul faced was of his apostolic authority. The second problem was the first part of the doctrinal problem, and that is that they were teaching that salvation was by faith plus works. 
specifically keeping the Mosaic law and circumcision. They were Judaizers. They said, this is all great to think that Jesus is the Messiah, but don't think that just because you believe Him, you don't have to continue to believe the law and the, everything in the Old Testament and continue to practice the law and the traditions of the Jews. And the third thing they taught was not only was salvation faith plus, but the spiritual life of the church age was also based on works, not faith. So Paul has to deal with these three issues, and he does so in chapters 1, 11 to the end of chapter 2, deals with his apostolic authority. In chapters 3 and 4, he talks about what the implications of ju- the principle justifi- justification by faith alone in relation to salvation, and then the implications of that for our spiritual life in chapters 5 and 6. So right now, we're right here dealing with the defense of his apostolic authority. And we've already covered verses 11 and 12, and we stopped last time looking at what the Bible says about Paul's former manner of life in Judaism. So let's begin by looking at at verse 13. And verse 13 begins by saying that for you, that is the Galatian believers, have heard, they, they know exactly what Paul's life was like before he was saved because he spent time among them on his first missionary journey and he explained to them his own uh, testimony, how he came to know the Lord. You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. Now, chapter verses 13 and 14 here are designed to establish the principle in relationship to Paul prior to his salvation. Now, let's just review a little bit about the life of Paul before he was saved. Well, first of all, we know that he was born in the town of Tarsus. Tarsus was a major city in the region known as Cilicia in the southeastern part of Turkey. In a map that looks something like this, here's the Mediterranean Sea. This is Turkey. Down in this southeastern corner was the town of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus was a major metropolitan area at the time. It had a major, major education center, and the people were known for their uh, desire to, to learn, to go to school, and to always advance their knowledge. So that was the reputation there. Uh, Paul was born into a a prominent family, probably among the socially elite in Tarsus because they were Roman citizens. We don't know the details, but apparently his father, grandfather, great-grandfather performed some service that was deemed important to the Roman Empire. And as a reward, the family was given Roman citizenship. And this was a position of uh, very high status in any, in any area outside of Italy because there weren't that many that were Roman citizens and it carried with it a tremendous number of privileges. And the Apostle Paul was able to utilize that to his advantage several times as a missionary as he was uh, being arrested or persecuted. He could say that he was a Roman citizen and then they couldn't touch him because as a Roman citizen you had to be treated with a certain degree of deference and honor because you were a Roman citizen. As part of this family, they were, their, their commercial enterprise was making tents. And so as a young boy, he was trained in the art of tent making so that he would have a profession and when he became an adult, he could carry on the family business. But they were also very, very as a family, very tied back to Judea. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, this is a very important phrase because among Jews, there were two classes. Remember, that we're talking about a period known as the diaspora. This is a technical term that is used to describe the dispersion of Jews throughout the ancient world. It, of course, began under the uh, Babylonian, after the Babylonian conquest, 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came in and uh, defeated the Jews and captured Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem and hauled a number of captives back to, uh, to Babylon. Uh, that began the dispersion. 
And even though a large number returned in the Old Testament time under Nehemiah, uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah and other leaders, that many of them scattered. They, they found colonies in places like Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, when Alexander the Great came through and conquered uh, much of that area, he, uh, he saw the, the, that the Jews were great at commerce. And so he would uh, give them enticements, just as we do today with certain businesses, to come into an area to establish their business there in order to provide a commercial base in, in the area. He would provide enticements for Jews to go out and develop colonies in different parts of the Greek Empire in order to, and the Romans did the same thing later on, in order to establish the commercial base to provide financial prosperity throughout the uh, empire. So the Jews were scattered or dispersed. This is the Latin word from which we get our word dispersed, and they're called, it's called the diaspora. There were two categories of Jews. There were those that were called Hebrews because they still spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, and they still maintained the tradition, a lot of the uh, traditions that were linked with those who lived in Judea. Then there were the Hellenists. This refers to um, the Jews who had adopted the Greek language. They couldn't speak Aramaic. They adopted a lot of uh, Greek customs, not the ones that were contrary to to, uh, the Jewish customs, but they weren't as concerned with maintaining their ties to Judea. So we know that, that Saul of Tarsus came from a family that was very devoted to their ancient traditions and ties to Judea. And so we're told in Acts 22 that when he was a young boy, probably before the age of 10, maybe as early as the age of 7 or 8, his family in Tarsus sent him to live probably with relatives in Jerusalem so that he would be trained up in the traditions and in the ways of the um, of the Jews so that he would learn Aramaic and Hebrew and be able to speak it like a native. And then when he was a little bit older, probably around the age of 12 to 14, he uh, became a disciple. That means a student. That's all the word disciple means is student. You hear a lot of talk among some groups like uh, uh, Campus Crusade and other groups about discipleship and how important discipleship is. And they put this emphasis on getting together in small Groups, and that this is just what Jesus did. He gathered 12 disciples together and then he taught them, and so that's the core of the church ministry. But you don't find the term disciple used after the day of Pentecost. You just don't. So, what does that tell you? That tells you that that methodology was something that was unique to the ministry of our Lord, and what you find in the Gospels is you find one man, an apostle or pastor-teacher, communicating doctrine to a large number of people. You don't find all the time just a small group. Now, obviously, Paul had his entourage that he was training, and that's comparable to a pastor who is teaching a congregation, and there might be some men in that congregation who have the gift of pastor-teacher, and he might work a little more closely with some of them to give them that special training, a little more attention in developing the use of their of their gift, and that's what was going on with Paul. The men around him were men who were pastors who traveled with him and performed certain uh, uh, jobs for him that he couldn't do. For example, he sent Titus down to Crete to solve the problems in that church down there. He would send Timothy to uh, Ephesus and to Corinth and to different places as, as, and use these men as troubleshooters in terms of his ministry. But never does he say that that's the pattern. Never is that mandated or commanded to be the pattern for local church growth or for the mission of the church. All the word disciple means is to be a student. And in the whole lordship salvation controversy, they make this issue of becoming a disciple. You know, when Jesus says you must do certain things to be my disciple, he's not talking about becoming a believer. And yet there's a lot of confusion that exists over this whole subject. A disciple is just a student. It is not necessarily a believer. A disciple might be a believer. But the conditions for discipleship, and Jesus establishes different levels, just as you have different levels in any school of the the involvement and commitment of students, uh, Jesus seems to establish a high level of expectation 
for some of his disciples and some of his students, a disciple is not equal to believers. So don't get into those passages and think that because Jesus says that there are certain things that you must do if you're going to be a disciple, that that has anything to do with salvation. Because a disciple is that it has nothing to do with becoming a believer and gaining salvation. So Paul is simply a student, a disciple of Gamaliel, who is considered one of the greatest rabbis of all time. That's like sitting under a man like uh, John Calvin or uh, C.I. Schofield or Lewis Berry Chaper or someone like that who's deemed one of the greatest teachers in all of church history. Now, Gamaliel was a very wise man. He was a Pharisee. And Paul was a part of the um, sect known as the Pharisees. Now, at the time of Paul lived and when the Lord walked on the earth in terms of his public ministry, uh, there were three different religious sects, that's sect, S-E-C-T, not sects. There were the Pharisees, just want to see if you're awake this morning out there. There were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes. They are not mentioned in the Scripture, but they were a very ascetic group who lived out in the Qumran area, in the uh, uh, wilderness, desert area, down by the Dead Sea. And they were the ones who kept a lot of manuscripts, stored them in clay jars, hid them back in the caves, and they were rediscovered in 1947 or 48, what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then there were the Sadducees. Now, I'm going to give you a real easy way to remember this in a minute, but the Pharisees, Pharisees emphasized strict obedience to the Mosaic Law. Now, we tend to look at the Pharisees through the eyes of the, uh, of the New Testament. We look at them through the eyes of, the, uh, of doctrine. And we know that as legalists, these guys were bad. And they're always portrayed in Scripture as the enemies of the Lord because they were the ones who fomented a lot of the hostility against the Lord which brought about his crucifixion. So the Pharisees are the bad guys. But if you lived at that time and you knew Pharisees, they were among the most wonderful people you could meet. They were do-gooders. They were trying to work their way to heaven. Their, their morality exceeded the morality of everybody around them. They were always going to church. They were going to synagogue and praying six or seven times a day. They had all of those... They, they said all the right things. They used all the right religious verbiage and terminology. And they were always saying praise the Lord and praise God and hallelujah. I mean, they were just so religious that there was nothing that anybody would ever ascribe to them that was bad or evil. So when the Lord comes along and says that they are like a grave full of dead man's bones painted with a nice white tombstone on the outside making it look good, but on the inside, it's nothing but dead man's bones. It was quite a shock when John the Baptist looked at them and called them a brood of vipers. I mean, this, they, these were strong words, and this would, would shock everybody because in terms of the culture, people really looked up to the Pharisees. I mean, these were nice people, good guys, the most respected in, the, in the, their society. They insisted on the, on the detailed observance of the law, and they were the religious conservatives. They believed everything in the Old Testament. Now, the Sadducees were the religious liberals. So they didn't believe in miracles. And they didn't believe in resurrection or life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. See, I told you I'd give you a little way to remember that. No life after death. They didn't believe in angels, miracles. So they were like the religious liberals of our day who do not believe in supernaturalism. They did not believe that miracles could take place. They didn't believe that angels existed. And they didn't believe in resurrection. And, and Paul used this to his advantage uh, when he was arrested in Jerusalem and taken on in a trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the governing body that was made up of both uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. And as soon as he walked in, he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Well, 
he created a theological firestorm right there because the Pharisees believed in resurrection and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. So they forgot about Paul and started arguing theology between them and created a, a, he created an enormous distraction. So Paul was quite, um, qu- quite a good strategist in terms of getting his enemies uh, distracted from persecuting him. So he was a student of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. And according to uh, Philippians chapter 3, he did everything that anyone could ever hope to do if they were going to gain the approval or approbation of God by means of their works. Let me read to you from, from Philippians 3, 4. He says, Although I might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. You can sit out there and you can make your grocery list of all the wonderful things you've got done that ought to impress God, but he said, your list won't even come close to my list. <coughs> I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So he is a persecutor of the church, and Paul, we saw last time, was first introduced to us in connection with the martyrdom and execution of Stephen. As Stephen is addressing the Pharisees and accusing them of the, uh, of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees became so angry with, with him that they immediately reached down in violation of any law code and picked up stones and began to stone him for blasphemy. And we're told there that there was a young man standing among the crowd who held their robes, and his name was Saul. So the term young man there probably refers to uh, someone who is in the vicinity of 30 years of age, which was when... Uh, at 30 was when a person would go enter into their public ministry. So Paul was probably 30 at that time, which means he was just a few years younger than our Lord. After Stephen was buried, he went on a rampage, attacking Christians and doing everything he can to get them he could to get them arrested and brought on trial and then executed. Here's a picture of our sin nature. Uh, sin nature is motivated by lust patterns. There's approbation lust and power lust, and part of our lust patterns are crusader lust. Combination with power lust and approbation lust, we see something that is very, very wicked and evil indeed, especially when that person is prone towards religiosity, as the Apostle Paul was, or as Saul of Tarsus was before he was saved. And so he was emphasizing his human good, and he was out there on his trend towards legalism, and he, operating on crusader, crusader lust, he was moving towards moral degeneracy. And that's one thing that most people don't understand is that you can be very, very moral and you're just as degenerate as you can be. And that was something that was true of all the Pharisees. They were very moral people. These were good people. These were the kind of people you would want to have as your next door neighbor because they weren't going to have any wild parties. They weren't going to be loud at night. Uh, you know, the only thing that would ever cause you any trouble is they, you might hear them praying a little too much. But they were good people. But they were moral degenerates and they stand condemned in the Word of God. So there is a problem with crusader lust and crusader mentality because we cannot gain anything by whitewashing the devil's world. And today, one of the greatest problems facing Christianity in this country is that most Christians are caught up in some kind of crusader mentality. And they're out there trying to, instead of doing what really will transform society, which is evangelism and teaching doctrine, they're trying to change society through implementation of laws, changing the Constitution, and all these other things in the name of Christ. That's the big problem. It's doing it in the name of Christ. Because it's not the role of the believer to change the world. We're not to try to whitewash the devil's world. J. Vernon McGee said most Christians are out there trying to shine the brass on a sinking ship. And it's a waste of time. The only thing that is going to solve the problems in this nation is Bible doctrine and the gospel. You have to get people saved first. They'll never understand spiritual truth or anything that can be that can be learned only from the Scripture unless they are regenerated first. 
And the problem with many Christians in this country is they're out there on the basis of the doctrine that they have. They're trying to impose that through legislation on unbelievers. And that's wrong. That's, and it's, it's insidious. And it's evil. And people need to stop it. It's a complete distraction from the truth which is, and the issue presented in Scripture, which is to uh, proclaim the gospel and to teach the word. You cannot expect unbelievers to live up to a standard that cannot be understood apart from regeneration. It's ridiculous. When they do not have a human spirit, then the Scriptures tell us that spiritual things cannot be understood by a soulish man. 1 Corinthians 2.12 If you are in the natural man or the soulish man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. So why are people going out there and trying to get unbelievers to recognize the truths of principles that can only be derived from the Scriptures and can only be understood if you're regenerate? And yet that's what most Christians are doing because they're ignorant. Because nobody's teaching doctrine in pulpits anymore. They're more concerned with crusade crusade mentality and imposing morality on the culture rather than teaching spirituality. And there's nothing wrong with morality. Morality reflects establishment principles. But morality is for believers and unbelievers alike. You do not go out there and say it is wrong to do this. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to, uh, to commit murder because I'm a Christian. I'm against it. Well, that's true because you're a Christian. You're against it. But the Scriptures present that as establishment truth, which is for believers and unbelievers alike, so its foundation can be established. The wrongness of those acts, the criminality of of those acts, can be established apart from Scripture because it's easily discernible by the unsaved person. The unsaved person out there knows that it's wrong to commit murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie. Uh, All of these things are wrong, and they know that just from natural revelation. It's establishment truth. But when you come to other things that can be learned only by studying the Word of God, and then you start trying to impose that as law on unbelievers, that's wrong. And that's the kind of thing that Christians get into when they're operating on arrogance and crusader lust and have that crusader mentality, and it's nothing more than moral degeneracy. Now, Paul gave a defense of his testimony and a defense of the gospel in Acts 26, which is where we ended last time. So let's turn there to Acts 26 and see how Paul defended the gospel. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 4. This occurred after Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. And he's brought before Agrippa. This is Herod Agrippa II who's the grandson of Herod the Great. And when Paul begins to give his testimony, it's described here as his defense. It's an apologia. Now, that's the same word from which we get our word apology, but it doesn't mean apology. Nobody should ever apologize for the gospel or apologize for doctrine. An apologia is a very technical word which has to do with presenting a legal defense. And this is expected of every single believer. So when we look at this, you can get some ideas and some principles here which are important for you in witnessing. You see, in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says that we should always be ready to give an answer. That's apologia, to give a defense, to make a legal case for why we are Christians. At any moment, somebody says, why do you go to church on Sunday? You should be ready to present the gospel, and if they have any questions, you should be ready to give the evidence for why you believe the Bible to be true. That's one reason we're spending some time going through these things in both Galatians and in John. So you have a responsibility as believers, as members of a church or participants in a local church. Number one, you have a responsibility... uh, as a believer, to be involved in a local church where you're taught Bible doctrine, where you come and you learn doctrine. And you have a responsibility in terms of your priesthood as a believer to be there every time the doors are open so that you can learn doctrine, so that you can grow spiritually. 
You have a responsibility as part of your priesthood to be involved in personal evangelism, in witnessing. You also have a responsibility as part of a local church to invite people, your friends or whatever, as part of your ministry, to invite people to come to church and to bring them so that they can be exposed to Bible doctrine. You see, the thing is, most people out there that are going to their churches talk about going to Bible class and going to Bible study, but they don't have the vaguest idea of what that is. They think they're studying the Bible every week. It's like I was talking to a friend of mine this last week in, uh, in Tucson. He's pastor of Tucson Bible Church, and he's been uh, talking here and there with a woman for the last couple of years who's from an Episcopal background. And... Um, Finally, she just got fed up with the whole scenario of, of them ordaining women and ordaining uh, homosexuals and, and everything else. And she decided she would finally come and visit his church. And she told him afterwards that she went home and she called up a friend of hers who's going through the same kind of struggle. And she said, you know, it was really interesting. We sang a couple of hymns and then we, all we did was we, we studied the Bible for an hour. Gosh, what a novel concept. Go to church and study the Bible. And we were talking about it on the phone. We said, you know, that's true. All these churches have Bible study, 7.30 Bible study, 9.30 a.m. And what they're doing isn't Bible study. But the people are brainwashed and thinking it's Bible study. And as soon as you bring somebody from that background into a doctrinal church where there's somebody actually exegeting the Scriptures from the original languages, developing categories and principles where you're really studying the Bible, they're just flabbergasted. Because they realize all of a sudden that, that what they've been eating all along and thought was steak was just oatmeal. And now all of a sudden, and, and they've been calling it steak. So part of your responsibility as, as a priest in terms of witnessing, as a member of a local church, is not just going out and witnessing to people, but also going that step further. That's not my job to go out there and beat the bushes to bring people to church. That's your job as your priesthood as part of your witness. Not only are you to be concerned about bringing people to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also bringing people to a recognition that they need doctrine in their lives so that they can grow spiritually. Paul begins his defense in verse 4, and he explains how everyone knew what he stood for and what he did. This was common knowledge. One of the things that the liberals uh, always accuse us of, well, you know, that they just really didn't tell the truth. This was myth that developed over time. It was oral tradition. But they forget the fact that you can't get away with saying that things went one way when everybody around was an eyewitness of what happened, and it happened another way. So they just they, they insult the intelligence of all the writers of Scripture and all Christians everywhere by saying, well, these things really, really, this was just sort of a tradition or myth that grew up around Jesus. And they forget that, that the writers of the New Testament couldn't be saying the things they said if it didn't happen that way because there were too many people who were hostile to what they were saying and were against them. There were public records, as we'll see in our study of John, there were public records uh, about what had happened, and it would be very easy to dis disprove any of these claims. And that's what Paul is saying here. Everybody knows what's going on. They've known me all my life. They knew the manner of life that I had from my youth up, which was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. So he starts off by saying that everybody knows what he stood for, what he did before he was saved. In verses 6, 7, and 8, we have a little parenthesis where he talks about the issue of the hope for the resurrection. He says, and now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So he grounds the issue in Old Testament Scripture, Old Testament promises. The promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the uh, Abrahamic covenant. The promises God made to David in the Davidic covenant. Various other promises that God made through the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So he focuses the issue on resurrection. So remember what I said about the Gospel, that the Gospel account includes understanding the doctrine of the resurrection. This is not something extra. 
But just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that I delivered to you what I first received, that Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the Gospel. The resurrection is very important, and every time we get Paul explaining the Gospel, he focuses not just on Christ's substitutionary death, but also on His resurrection, because the resurrection is God's testimony and authentication of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross and demonstrates His victory over death. Now we come down to verses 9-11. through 11. He explains His hostility to Christianity. So then I thought, thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He wants to make sure that, that this upstart sect does not gain any ground and He's going to personally... Uh, to make sure that it's wiped out. Verse 10, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, in prisons having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was so involved that in some one passage he's referred to, his activities referred to as murder. So he was a murderer of believers. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. In other words, torture was very much part of his modus operandi. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. And all around me and those who were journeying with me. And, and when we had all fallen to the ground, so right there we see that this is something that's objective. It's not just a, an internal vision that Paul's too caught up in what he was doing and he's tired and all of a sudden he has this mystical vision which is all internal. It was objective. What Jesus said specifically was heard and understood only by the Apostle Paul. The sound of a voice was heard by those with him. He saw the light and fell to the ground, but everybody else with him also saw the light and fell to the ground. So it is an objective event. This is not some kind of an emotional response taking place inside the Apostle Paul. It's based on an objective reality of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to him on the road to Damascus. And when we had all fallen to the ground, verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, all this time as you're going out there and you're persecuting Christians and you're arresting them, you know you're hearing the Gospel. He heard it over and over again. And there was something about it that was bothered him more and more as the Holy Spirit was using that to convict him of the truth and he just kept resisting it. That's what the Lord means when He says, why are you kicking against the goads? And the Apostle Paul says, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. This is his apostolic commission. So somewhere in here he has become a believer. Uh, But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear or reveal to you delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And then you ought to underline verse 18 because this is a very, very important verse because of its doctrinal implications for the Gospel. To open their eyes, that is, the eyes of the soul, so that they may turn from darkness to light. Now, we're going to see this kind of imagery all through the Gospel of John. Darkness as evidence and symbolic representation of the domain of Satan. The unbeliever is in darkness. He is in Satan's kingdom, and that is described as darkness. God, we're told, is light, and He exists in unapproachable light. light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Darkness represents sin and evil and the cosmic system. K-O-S-M-O-S. Cosmos. Cosmos Diabolicus. The 
cosmic system of Satan. Over here is the realm of light, representing God's purity, His righteousness, His holiness, His integrity. At the point of salvation, the believer is transferred immediately from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. How? By faith in me. Faith alone and Christ alone is the gospel. So we are in light as believers. But Paul, I mean John, in 1 John 1 is going to say, and, and Paul does too in Ephesians 4, we are now children, we are now in the light, walk as children of light. So as a believer, you can be in the light positionally because you are a child of God, and yet you're walking over here just like you're an unbeliever. You're walking according to the power of the sin nature and according to the power of the flesh. And the only way to get back over here is through 1 John 1, 9. And at the moment you confess your sins, you are instantly restored to fellowship. And then as you go forward, you're walking in the light. But walking is the image of progress. One foot in front of the other. Going somewhere. All that happens when you confess your sins is you go from being out here in darkness to being here in light. But it's positional. You're not moving. Confession only gets you into a position where spiritual growth can take place. It's not the end, it's the beginning. It gets you to a place where you can go forward and grow as a believer. Too many get, people get the idea that, okay, I'm just going to confess my sins and sit back, fold my hands, and spiritual growth is going to happen. Well, that's, that's hogwash. That's not what, what this means. What this means is that now that you're in fellowship, you're in a position where if you learn doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit, believe it, and apply it. It's a key word there is apply it. Believe it and apply it. You've got to do all of that. Learn it, believe it, and apply it. You can't apply what you don't know. And you can't know what you don't take the time and the energy and the discipline to learn. It's just like anything else worthwhile in life. If you're going to if it's going to be usable in your life, then you've got to spend a lot of time studying it. You've got to make it a priority in your life. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the highest priority in your life, bar none, is the study of Bible doctrine, learning it, getting it into your soul, so that you can use it and apply it on a day-to-day basis. And that takes concentration, it takes energy, it takes time, and it takes discipline. And if you're not willing to do all of that, then you're going to be an absolute failure in the Christian life. Oh, you might get involved in a church and do all kinds of churchy things. And you might do all kinds of religious things. But that's not going to count. Religion, remember, religion is the greatest enemy to the plan of God. Religion is Satan's strongest, strongest strategy because it gets people away from God and gets their eyes on their own works. Religion is man doing, trying to gain the approval of God by his own efforts. Man does the work, and God's supposed to bless it. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. It's based on faith alone in Christ alone. God does all the work. All the work. Not 90% of it. Not 95% of it. Not 99% of it. God does all the work, and all we do is accept it. It's a free gift. Not like those free gifts that the um, people on the telephone try to give you because if you sign up for this, then we'll give you a free gift. That's not a free gift. You have to do something to get it. It's a free gift, no strings attached. God says all you have to do is accept it. I've done it all. You can't do anything. If you try to do anything, it's going to destroy it. So all you do is accept it. Faith alone in Christ alone. Then in the next verses, verses 16 through 18, he mentions his, the uh, Christ Apostolic Commission, gives his message following verse 19 to 23. He gives a message to King Agrippa. He's witnessing to the king. And the interesting thing is that when he comes down to it, the, uh, we learn in uh, verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time,
you of what took place on the road to Damascus. You see, Luke has three different accounts in Acts of Paul's conversion. There's the account of the of what took place on the road to Damascus itself in Acts chapter nine. In Acts chapter two, Paul or twenty two, Paul gives his defense to Festus. So we get a little different a little more information there that wasn't included the first time. In Acts twenty six there's a little more information that's not included the first time. And in Galatians chapter one and Galatians chapter two there's information that Luke doesn't have at all. So this creates a little uh, little conflict trying to put all of these accounts together. That's why I want to spend a little. T- I'm spending a little time looking at this this morning. Ver- chapter 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, my apologia, which I now offer to you. And then when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way. That's what they called Christians at the very beginning was the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. Look, all you have to do is go talk to one of these guys. There's one right over there. There's another one right back there. Go ask them. They will tell you that what I am saying is the truth. Notice, it's objectifiable data. This is not subjective impressions. It's not religious activity. It's objective things that took place in space-time history. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And it came about that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who are with me beheld the light. Notice, you can also find them and ask them, and they'll tell you that this happened. Those who are with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Why? Because the message was only to Paul. But they could hear the sound, but they were not to hear the exact words. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, Arise and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Then he goes on, and then we have he goes into town, meets Ananias, who's going to uh, miraculously give his sight back to them, to him. And this is what Ananias says to him, starting in verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will. That's His apostolic commission. And to see the righteous one, that's Jesus Christ, and to hear an utterance from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Objective data. And now, why do you delay? Here's an interesting verse. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. And the term, wash away your sins, is a participle. This is a bad translation. It indicates here that almost sounds as if baptism is part of salvation. It says, arise and be baptized, and it's an anarthrous present participle. And when you have an anarthrous participle, that means it lacks the definite article in the Greek, and a the in English is a definite article. Because it lacks that, that means it's going to be an adjectival or adverbial participle. What kind of adjective? Is it cause or means? There's about nine different categories of adjectival participles. And here it would be a participle of cause. Therefore, the correct translation is arise and be baptized because you have washed away your sins by calling another participle, a participle of means, by calling on His name. In other words, this is referring back to the fact that at the moment of gospel hearing, when He's confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, He calls on the name of the Lord for salvation, faith alone in Christ alone, and the result is that He is cleansed from all of His sins. That's how it took place. 
It's not arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Baptism doesn't do that. What washes away the sins was calling on His name, the application of salvation to Paul at the moment of gospel hearing. So that is a very, very bad translation there in um, Acts 22.16. Well, let's go back to, now with that background in mind, let's go back to Galatians 1.14. We've picked up the information about Paul's conversion. Let's review Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. In other words, he's at the head of the pack. He, he, he's highly competitive and he wants to make sure that he's beyond everybody else. He says, and then we have another... Um, adjectival participle here and it should be translated by being more extremely zealous. What was causing him to advance? By being more zealous. I mean, he was really caught up in this. He was obsessed with being the most zealous so that he could um, wipe out Christianity by being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Verse 15, But when He who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, that I might proclaim Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So in 15 through 17, what we have is Paul's salvation and how it is not at all connected with those in Jerusalem. Verse 15. We have some very interesting statements here that we need to clarify so that, and, and they, they reflect a certain understanding of Bible doctrine. But when He who had set me apart, that's obviously referring to God the Father. When He who had set me apart even from my mother's womb called me. Okay. Set apart has to do with God's elective purposes. We're going to discuss election in just a minute. It has to do with God's elective purposes and their outworking in human history. That every believer is set apart. Now this is not the term for sanctification, which also means to be set apart. But this is the Greek word aphorisos, which has to do with the fact that God has A-P-H-O-R-I-S-A-S. And it has to do with the fact that God had a specific and special plan for the Apostle Paul. And he began working that. God was at work in Paul's life even before he was a, a believer. And it is from, he says, even from my mother's womb. Now, I think the NIV more correctly translates that. This is the phrase, ek... Koileas in the Greek. It is E-K-K-O-I-L-I-A-S. Ek plus the genitive of separation. Ek plus the genitive of separation. Now this phrase is really what's called a Hebraism. That means it's a Greek phrase that translates a Hebrew idiom. This is very important for you to get this. In the Old Testament, you have the phrase, Mibetan. That's M-I-B-E-T-E-N. It's a compound of the preposition men, M-I-N, and the word betten from the womb. Now, if you don't understand this, you will really get screwed up on a lot of biblical passages. So pay attention. I don't have time to go into this in a tremendous amount of detail, but we're here. I'm just going to cover it very, very briefly. In the Hebrew language, there is no noun for the word birth. 
There is a verb for birth, to be born, but there's no noun. So when you have a phrase, from birth, from is a preposition, birth is a noun. If you don't have a noun for birth, you can't say that. You have to use an idiom. The idiom is, in Hebrew, was mibetan. It doesn't mean inside the womb. It never refers to this activity inside the womb. That would use the preposition ba, which means in or inside. It's just a b. It's just a prefix attached to the word. It's just be, and it means in or inside. But it is not babetan. It is mibetan, which refers to something outside the womb. So we'll use this circle as the womb, and it's referring to something that's out here once birth takes place. You know, the interesting thing is that the NIV accurately translates this phrase in a number of places because they understand the, the imagery here. Now, I think that, that as an idiom, it not only refers to, it doesn't refer just specifically to birth, but from an early age. And the reason I say that is because when you look at the episode, not in John, but in Luke 1, where it talks about John the Baptist. And it says, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit, ek koilea. Now, number one, John the Baptist cannot be, unless you violate every other doctrine in Scripture, cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit prior to salvation. Period. As an unregenerate unbeliever, John the Baptist cannot, cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit prior to salvation. If one person in human history is filled with the Holy Spirit prior to salvation, it contradicts everything else said in the Scriptures. Period. That is a major problem that very few people even think about because they have other issues they're concerned with. Luke 1. This is an idiom. Luke 1, the NIV correctly translates it that he's filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. But I even have a problem with that, being from birth. Because then you have, you still have John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit before he's ever saved. And that violates everything else that we know about in Scripture related to the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it probably means, either it can mean from birth or it can mean from an early age, but it doesn't mean prior to birth, because the Bible clearly sets the parameters of human life between birth and death. It does not say that the parameters of human life are conception and death. It clearly states that it is me betten from birth to death that are the parameters of human life. What goes on inside the womb during the nine months of gestation is God the Father working with biological life according to Psalm 139, forming the biological life. And that at the moment of birth, with the first breath, this is called Neshama, N-E-S-H-A-M-A-H, from Genesis chapter 1, the breath of life, God the Father breathes the soul into that individual. Simultaneously with birth, God the Father creates and breathes the soul, soul life, into the biological life. So at that moment, when soul life is joined with biological life, at that point you have full human life. So that human life has as its parameters birth and death. All through the Scriptures you have that. It's the same thing that's true. Jesus did not say, you must be conceived again before you can see the kingdom of God. He says you must be born again before you see the kingdom of God. The parameters for spiritual life are birth and death. Parameters for human life are birth and death. And we will get into that subject a little more fully. But I want you to understand that um, what Paul is saying here is from the moment of his birth, God's plan for his life was special. And he called me. This brings us to another very, very important doctrine. The doctrine of calling from the Greek word kaleo. So we're going to look at several points to make sure we understand the doctrine of the divine call. Point number one. Well, I see by our time that our time's just about up.
So we will stop here and we will begin next Sunday morning with this very, very important issue of the doctrine of the divine call. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the transforming power of Your Word, the transforming power of the Gospel, as we see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. And Father, I would pray that for each of us, that as we look at these things, we would not just regard them as some sort of academic, academically interesting information, but just as the Apostle Paul, who was completely hostile to Christianity, uh, a man who uh, hated Christians with every fiber of his being, just as he was transformed into the greatest apostle of all time, the greatest teacher of all time. Father, just as that happened, so that can happen to people we know, that however they may feel about Christ, however they may feel now about Christianity, that the gospel has true saving power and transforming power, and that those people, no matter how hostile they may be, no matter what their position now, that once they clearly understand the gospel, if they believe, then they too can have their lives transformed. And if they pursue doctrine, can become some of the most wonderful people on earth. So, Father, we pray that we would have a vision for evangelism and witnessing to those around us because we believe in the power of the gospel. It's not just words. It's not just utterances we hear every Sunday that we nod our heads to. But it is a reality that the gospel is your power and transforms lives. So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.